Welcome to the Masters in Exercise podcast. We have good news. This week we reached 500 listeners and we are very happy. Thanks for listening to the podcast. In this episode, I had the pleasure to speak with Dr. Ada Tang. Dr. Tang is an associate professor in the Department of Physical Therapy at McMaster University in Canada. Her research focuses on cardiovascular health in people with a stroke. We talk about exercise prescription in these people, but before that, we discuss the role of exercise in a stroke prevention. We also talk about the different types of training that we can use for these patients and what are the expected benefits. We also discuss how early we can start training after a stroke, a very controversial question, the barriers and facilitators of exercise in this clinical group, and many more interesting things. I found the conversation incredibly interesting and useful. Without further ado, this is my conversation with Dr. Ada Tang. Hello, Dr. Tang. Thanks for doing this. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Um, I'd like to start by asking you if you could briefly walk us through your professional trajectory. Um, particularly, I think it would be interesting to know why you decided to become a physical therapist, why you decided to do research, and what led you to focus on a stroke rehab specifically. Yeah, thanks. Um, I, I was a physiotherapist for many years before I even went into research. I think when I was in high school and I was trying to decide what I wanted to do when I grew up, um, I took a course that actually uh, we learned about the human body. It was an anatomy course. Um, and I really was fascinated by the muscles and the bones and joints and kind of where things attached. And that's when I got interested in physio. Um, so I applied and I got into the program. I went to U of T for physio school. Um, and when I graduated, I actually thought that I was going to get a job first because I'd been in school for a while um, and work in, in private practice in sports medicine. So my first job was actually in a hospital uh, and I started to work um, in rehab in complex continuing care, stroke rehab, geriatric rehab. And it was something that the longer I stayed in that setting, the more I loved it, the more I loved working with the patients. Um, I really loved working with the team. I loved being part of kind of a larger group that was helping people recover from their injuries or, or, or whatever. Um, and and that's how I ended up staying in rehab. Um, I got into research because I was interested in, in trying it. It wasn't something that I wanted to do when I first graduated, but the, you know, I, I was in a teaching hospital. We did some teaching at the, at the University of Toronto. Um, I was teaching clinical labs and that kind of thing. And then um, just being embedded back into the academic setting got me interested in, in trying out research. So I thought I would do my master's. Um, I was working in stroke rehab at the time um, I had the opportunity to, to do a project on exercise, which was actually a great way to merge my personal interests in like in wellness and physical activity and exercise with my clinical practice. So we did one of the first studies to look at what the effects of exercise training was in um, in subacute stroke. So up until then, most of the research had been done in chronic, the chronic stages. And we want to push the boundaries a little bit and see, you know, could we do something earlier in stroke, like within within inpatient rehab. So that was my foray into research. It was a really positive experience, and here I am, and uh, and and here I am uh, as a as a faculty member. So that's kind of you know a little bit of a roundabout way how I ended up being uh, where I, how did I end up 
uh, where I am. Um, clinical practice first, uh, dip a toe in research and end up really liking it. And, and I hope that the work that I do now really continues to be a blend of my, you know, my clinical experience uh, for many years and, and just can, and, um, and research and discovery and learning. Okay, interesting. Um, so may I ask you, do, do, you miss, do you miss clinical practice? Yeah, I do actually. I, I really do. And it and it was one of the it was kind of one of the decisions that I had to make when I was deciding at as I was approaching the end of my master's, do I go back to my clinical job or do I continue on to do my PhD? And I really, you know, struggled because I, I missed clinical practice when I left it. I, I was intending to go back, but then I, I knew that if I went on to do my PhD, that meant well, I might not be able to go back and was I ready to kind of let that side of me go? Um, I, it was it was such a, a great part of my career. I, I, I still look back at it really, really fondly. And I hope that, um, you know, I, I still feel really grounded in, in all those years as I, work, as I worked as a clinician. Um, I think I reconciled it as, you know, if I'm going to continue on in research, then I want to make sure my research stays clinically focused. And that was how I, I, I reconciled it in my own mind um, that, that I, I ha- it's not that I, I say goodbye to my clinical side and my clinical life, um, but it, it remains a really, really important part of my research even now. Okay. Um, so before I ask you questions about exercise prescription, which I have many, uh, I'd like you to talk briefly about stroke prevention and how physical activity and exercise can prevent stroke. What is the evidence? Do, does exercise reduce the risk of having a stroke? And if it does, what are the mechanisms uh, behind it? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, the, the evidence to date around exercise hasn't yet shown that we can reduce the risk of another stroke. Um, we're getting closer to it. I think you know. We I think we all believe that it can, but the, but um, none of the meta analyses have shown that it actually can reduce heart outcomes like you know death or uh, recurrent events or you know cardiovascular disease. Um, most of the evidence to date has has focused on more functional outcomes like walking speed or walking you know capacity six minute walk test, um, you know fitness. Um, only recently, I would say within the last two or three years, there's been meta-analytic data that shows that we can improve risk factors. So we can lower, you know, systolic blood pressure, we can improve HDL cholesterol, we can, you know, improve insulin levels. Um, So we're getting there. Um, there's been a, a couple of meta-analyses that have shown that exercise after stroke can improve some of these metabolic and vascular risk factors, but in terms of reducing the occurrence of events, incidence of events, we're not there yet. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, so it's more a reduction of these factors that can increase the risk of having a stroke. What exercise does is to reduce this risk by improving these cardiometabolic factors, I guess, right. but you don't have still evidence that really exercising frequently will reduce the risk of having a stroke especially i guess you have different types of strokes some strokes are produced by these factors but some other strokes you know malformations in 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 the vessels of the brain and things like that probably these strokes cannot be prevented even even if you're a very active person no yeah that's a really good point you're right um you know the the strokes that are of, of um, cardiovascular kind of etiology, maybe we can, you know, reduce the risk for that, risk for that. And right now we're just showing, you know, changes in some of the risk factors, um, which is which is still a start. I think 
it hasn't been very common for studies to, to um, include outcomes around risk factors. Again, like they've, they've focused on like quality of life, you know, disability outcomes, um, functional outcomes, um, but not so much these risk factors. So, and, and these risk factors usually take, you know, a large sample size to show, yeah. um, so change, right? So, so you know, single studies aren't going to be powered enough. You know, as I said, it's only been recently that there have been enough studies that we can combine into meta-analyses to say, oh, actually, we can reduce risk factors. Okay, I understand. So when we think about exercise, we normally think about cardiovascular exercise or resistance uh, exercise. I mean, these are the two main forums. Uh, so you, you said that there is no evidence that or direct evidence that exercise can reduce the risk of a stroke. So I was wondering in terms of risk factors, how do you think about these two types of exercise? Do you think one is better than the other? Because I see people really prioritizing one type of exercise versus the other. Some people, for example, they don't touch weights. Some other people only do weight training. Some people combine both. So I was wondering in terms of reduction of risk factors, if you have any, I don't know, any suggestion or you think that one exercise is better than the other, or you can, for example, expect different adaptations uh, from different types of exercise in terms of all these factors that can contribute to have a, to have a stroke? Yeah, most of the evidence has focused, I would say, on aerobic training, on aerobic exercise after stroke. Um, in the, you know, there are studies that have looked at resistance training or strength training, but not as many. Um, and there are a number of studies that have kind of combined it. So look at what they call, you know, combined or mixed training. Um, I would still say, though, that even the mixed training studies, the strengthening component of those studies haven't been necessarily like lifting weights. Um, they've been more functional training. So um, functional movements like you know, sit to stands or like climbing, you know, stepping up onto steps and that kind of thing. Um, in the same way that aerobic exercise has, I think, been pretty conservative in how we've prescribed it, you know, more moderate, low to moderate intensity and, and really kind of slow progressions. Any studies that have done strength training, like I said, for one thing, they've been more functional and maybe not as intense or as progressive as I think it could be. So, but we don't know what the potential for resistance training is for people with stroke, just because I think that we haven't really pushed that far yet in terms of the evidence. Um, we're only starting to do it now in aerobic training. We're only starting to explore things like, you know, pushing to moderate to high intensity exercise, looking at it, it, high intensity interval training. That's, that's still really new in stroke. Um, in, on the aerobic side. So we haven't even started to explore that on the resistance training side. Um, but I do think there is potential. Um, I do think there is potential for resistance training. I think clinically, I mean, to be honest, I, it, you know, as a, as, a, as, a, as a physiotherapist, I might say, well, how is somebody with a stroke going to hold a dumbbell or, you know, push a weight? So we need to think about you know, and, and then how translatable is like, if I do bicep curl or I do a bench press, how translatable is that going to be to function? Whereas if I do more functional strength training that uses body weight or, you know, in functional movement patterns, hopefully that won't translate into function. So there's kind of, I think, a bit of balance that therapists are, 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 are trying to strike. Um, but then I think there's an opportunity as researchers that we can we can push we can push that envelope and okay. see where, where. Um, I want to ask you about um, 
one aspect that you have addressed in your previous research, which is the impact of exercise on cognition in people with a stroke. And I was reading one of your papers and that paper really shows that the effect doesn't seem to be quite big. So I'm wondering if, if, if you can tell us about the evidence of, you know, using exercise to prevent cognitive decline in people with a stroke. What is the evidence supporting a positive effect of, of exercise in this, in this population? Because the study that I read from you didn't show a, a very, very positive effect. It did a significant effect, I mean. Yeah, there's been a lot of interest in, in kind of what exercise can do to improve cognition in different populations. So, and, and so, you know, a few of us has tried to explore whether or not um, this would carry over to stroke. Um, in that one study that we did, we, we did not find differences. We did not find that exercise training was effective um, in improving uh, certain markers of cognition. We looked at executive function. Um, we did the Stroop test, so we looked at, um, you know, conflict resolution and then trail making B, um, so kind of set shifting and then um, um, digit, digit span, so memory or working memory. Um, we didn't see changes. I mean, we acknowledge in that paper that, that, that those were not our primary outcomes, so we didn't power the study to be able to see changes. It was something that we were interested in kind of as a secondary outcome. Um, there was a meta-analysis that was done um, just a couple of years ago um, that does show that exercise training after stroke can improve some markers of, of cognition. Um, so, but it's, it's, it's selective depending on the domain, um, depending on the, on the domains. I think there's a lot that's going on with the stroke population that maybe the evidence isn't as clear cut as it is with, um, you know, other populations like an aging population um, and what the benefits of exercise can be on cognition. Um, just out of interest, we also did a secondary analysis of that secondary analysis uh, to see if there may be potentially sex differences in how exercise can impact cognition. Uh, so one of our master students, she she looked at uh, males and females um, separately, and she found uh, it was interesting that that females may respond to exercise. Um, in terms of improving cognition more so than males. Again, we weren't powered to do this. This was really just exploratory. Some of Teresa Luis Ambrose's work is also showing there may potentially be some sex differences where females um, may respond differently. So I think there's a lot going on um, in terms of um, cognition after stroke for one thing. And then if you layer on other factors such as, you know, the factor of exercise, but also the factor of potentially sex and how okay. that mediates the, Right. Yeah, there, there is some evidence that sex can be one of the moderators. And I was reading the other day the studies by Teresa, and also we just submitted a meta-analysis, and we look at genotype, and it's interesting how genotype is another factor, but it seems that biological sex can really modulate the effect of some specific um, genes on the cognitive response to exercise. Yeah. Um, so can you discuss the main barriers and facilitators for exercise participation in people with a stroke? Are they different that, you know, lack of time or what, what we normally say to justify it and we don't, we don't move much? Are, are, there, are these patients just encountering the same barriers or what, what kind of things can, you know, stop them from exercising or what kind of things can, you know, increase their participation in physical activity? 
Yeah. Um, so Kevin Monsignor actually just published a scoping review looking at barriers and facilitators to exercise um, more from the clinician's point of view. So as a clinician, what are some of the barriers and facilitators to me implementing exercise with my patients? Um, and from the clinician's point of view, they report things like you know, the lack of time, or I don't have the, the equipment in my, in my clinic or the space um, or the staff to be able to do it. Um, but there's also some interesting things that came out. Um, clinicians feel, some clinicians feel that they don't have the knowledge or the skills to be able to provide exercise prescription or, or, or to screen or to test exercise, um, for exercise safety. Um, so they feel uncertain about their own capability and then uh, to be able to maintain safety for their patients. And then um, some interesting themes that are also coming out are that, you know, with all the challenges that clinicians face in their day-to-day -day practice with, um, you know, having to see X number of people per day or like in hospitals, length of stay being like pushed shorter and shorter and you know, it's just exercise is not a priority. It just it just gets kind of shifted down the list when there's so many other things that are 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 kind of taking um, taking priority. So, how much of that? Okay, so that's from the therapist's point of view. How much of that gets translated to you know what the patient perceives? So, if the therapist isn't able to prioritize exercise as part of say their rehab or their treatment, does that mean that the, the patients feel like oh well, exercise? My exercises is like the walking and the and the upper limb function and the stair climbing and transfers practice not about getting on a treadmill or on a new step or a bike to actually get my heart rate up so yeah there's some of that i think from the patient's point of view too like i think lack of lack of access to services well you know where, where they live in their community and whether their programs available lack of access from a transportation point of view sometimes cost can be a factor all of those things are, are very real barriers i think not just for people with stroke but for a lot of people and why they they don't necessarily you know not that you have to join a gym to get your exercise but there may be less opportunities or less awareness of how they could you know still maintain activity or, or in, increase their activity um, without and overcome those barriers. So I'm very interested in the piece of lack of knowledge by clinicians. So I was wondering if you think this is changing now and we're providing our students with more tools, with more knowledge to be able to prescribe exercise to stroke patients, or you still think that, you know, we still need to do much better because they, when they finish PT school, they don't, uh, they don't have enough information for um, for prescribing exercise in these patients because they don't have enough information. They don't know enough. I, I think it's changing. I think it's changing. I hope it's changing. It's something that, um, you know, at McMaster, we made a very conscious effort to try to increase the the curriculum um, in, in our PT program to, to give the students, you know, knowledge about how to prescribe exercise safely for all of the different populations that, that that students may may work with in the future so I do think it's changing um, and I think I think you know the graduates now are going to be you know the wave of the future and how we're going to change practice and enhance practice um, I think some of the some of the sentiments I think um, that were expressed by people in these studies may have been therapists who were not did not receive that training while they were in PT school and then maybe didn't necessarily seek out the opportunity or have the opportunity to get further training post you know um as um uh 
what's it called? Like a new medication or yeah, development. Um, so I think that that's part of it. Um, but it, it will be up to us to kind of help change practice. And I think, you know, with some of the things that you were asking me about earlier, you know, you know, the, you know, the research that I'm doing and, and, you know, how does that translate, um, into clinical practices is also part of, you know, is also important to me because I feel like we're generating this knowledge. We know exercise is important. We need to also make sure it gets, it gets uptaken into practice. Okay. So I have questions now about exercise prescription, really, and I know that some of these questions are a bit uh, tricky and uh, maybe controversial. One that you know is a common question is how early we can train these patients after a stroke. And there's been quite a lot of research, um, and honestly, uh, I'm still, uh, to be honest, I don't know the answer. Uh, Michelle Puffman, for example, she presented a theoretical framework to try to uh, you know, have these windows of opportunity for brain plasticity or recovery that we think we have in a stroke. And recently, I think Janice Eng just published a paper in Subacute, but some other groups uh, in Europe, for example, they show that studying very early maybe is not the best way to go. So I was wondering, what is your take on that? What, what do you think? Do, do we know when to start with patients once they're medically stable, obviously? And does it make any difference if we wait a bit more? Let's say that, you know, for safety reasons, we want to wait one month more. Will that make a big difference uh, in terms of the recovery? Or what do you think? You're right. I, I, I don't have a clear answer for, for you on that either. I think there's still a lot that we're learning. Um, and, uh, and a balance that I think everyone's trying to strike between, you know, starting early and trying to capitalize on, on you know, these, these critical time windows, but at the same time, you know, ensuring patient safety. Um, you, you know, like Julie Bernhardt's AVERT trial was, you know, really um, groundbreaking because they were, they were pushing like within 24 hours, can we, can we mobilize early? Um, and, and, but that is really, really early. And, you know, of course, um, the outcomes that they, they found in their study were, were, you know, more detrimental outcomes in the very early group. Um, but I think that's actually opened the door for more research for us to really understand like what is happening in those like within 24 hours, within 72 hours of stroke versus if we waited a couple of weeks. Um, I mean, the best practice guidelines say as soon as medically stable. So um, from a metabolic, cardiovascular, neurologic point of view uh, for exercise, for exercise training to start. Um, I think exercise can look different at different stages too. So, you know, we're not going to put someone on a treadmill or new step within, you know, a couple of days of stroke, but we also have to recognize that some of the early mobilization that therapists might do can be challenging, you know, can, can raise blood pressure and raise heart rate and like, you know, um, potentially change, you know, what's happening up in the brain and, and that kind of thing too. So those kinds of, those kinds of things we don't know as much about. I don't think we do as good a job clinically, you know, monitoring, um, monitoring vitals uh, when we're doing, you know, mobilization, or maybe there's a lot of things that we assume just through, you know, clinical observation that they're fine, but there may be subclinical things that are happening that we're not we could be doing a better job monitoring okay. even just, you know, the first time we transfer someone out of bed, right? Like, are we, are we taking blood pressure 
we do a heart rate check before and after they get get up right like i don't know i think that's something that we 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 could think about okay um i have another question which is uh um one problem that we see in clinical practice is intensity of exercise so we don't think i think i think you will agree with me that we don't prescribe enough exercise but the other problem that we have is that the exercise that is prescribed for these patients doesn't reach intensity which is needed to create changes how do you think we can change this um, because there are some studies that there is a study for example showing that if you if you put heart rate monitors and you measure the heart rate of patients with a stroke throughout clinic you know their rehab rehab day i mean I think it was 2%, 3% of that session that really reached a target rate, heart rate that could produce some sort of adaptations. So how do we change this? Because we know that intensity is one of the main parameters of exercise to produce change, to produce adaptations. How, 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 how can we increase the intensity of exercise in these patients? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think the, those studies that, that put heart rate monitor on just to see how challenging, you know, standard conventional rehab was, um, there will be there will be periods or spikes where we can raise heart rate but is it is it in a sustained manner that is needed to see you know cardiovascular adaptations aerobic adaptations no right like if if we're going to be doing some walking with a patient we may only do it for like 20 meters down a hallway and then that's it and is that is that in a sustained fashion you know it doesn't even matter about heart rate is that a meeting kind of time you know um intensity you know um thresholds to see change? Probably not. So when it comes to, you know, some of the things that we want to change from um, a cardiovascular, cardiometabolic health point of view, it needs to be structured, it needs to be, you know, formalized, and it needs to be, you know, sustained um, for a period of time and at, at certain minimum intensities. So how do we get people to change? <laughs> uh, that's like that's like the million dollar question, right? Like, I think different places have tried different models. Um, you you know, therapists may work one on one with their patient, um, but you know, some places have thought about doing group exercise and setting aside time where there's an exercise class within within the hospital, right? That operates every like Tuesdays and Thursdays at this time and 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 patient or, or therapist can make referrals to those classes. Um, then you have dedicated people and dedicated time to work on some of the exercise components that maybe you don't have time for or can prioritize when you're working with your patient one-on-one. Um, and then, you know, some of the spillover would be then you have you 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 overcome the challenge of like you don't have the space or this person out like the staffing or this or the equipment when you designate a certain time for those bikes and those treadmills and those new steps to be available and the people who are running those groups you know maybe they get whoever is interested in doing that gets the opportunity to take courses and learn about how to safely prescribe exercise and, and properly prescribe exercise and monitor, you know, for symptoms and responses to exercise. Okay. And then, you know, like, I, I think there's, there's a lot of steps, um, but it's certainly not insurmountable. Um, I think if there is um, an interest and a desire, then, then, then places can make it work. Um, and then it doesn't necessarily have to be on each individual therapist, but maybe as a group, right. As a group of therapists that they can make that okay. happen. So changes need to happen 
at the clinical level, but also in terms of the education of the patient, I guess, but also in terms of logistics to, to be able to have the equipment or the resources to, to, to be able to increase the intensity of exercise. And that means, for example, having more physical therapists on the floor, maybe to monitor much better uh, patients. So. Yeah. And it, yeah, some of the work that we're doing too is, is also trying to understand from like, like the hospital administrator's point of view, right? Like from the clinical managers who are allocating resources and space, what, what, what do they, what do they think about? And, and if I'm a therapist, who do, how do I engage them to talk to them say, you know, I think this is worth our time and our resources to de- dedicate the gym space during this time for exercise group and get the buy-in from like the manager administrator point of view, obviously from the frontline clinician point of view, but also from, like you said, the patients and and their families point of view as well. So there's lots of different levels um, and lots of opportunities to engage all of those levels. Okay. Um, So if you look at the American college of sports medicine guidelines, uh, in theory, every patient with a stroke should have a graded exercise test. You know, it's one of the one of the things that can improve safety, and that's something that we do in the hospital. And I think we're lucky that I have my lab and I have you know the technology to do that. Four or five years ago, nobody was doing a stress test in that hospital, even though we were training people with a stroke. So, a lot of people do not have the personnel, they don't have the equipment, they don't have the technology or the knowledge to do this. Do you think that these tests are mandatory? Do you think there are a must or you you think that it can be a barrier if you make them uh, mandatory for you know before they engage any kind of training what is your what is your take on this i definitely think it can be a barrier i think you know to do a full graded maximal exercise test is 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 a lot um you know i i don't think it's realistic to expect you know the 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 most clinicians to be able to do these, like it's not going to be reasonable that they're going to have the equipment or the expertise to do that. So if you don't have access to that, does that mean that your patients don't exercise? Like, I hope not. Right. So what can we do to try to overcome that barrier? Um, you know, if, if, if they're in a facility like yours and they have access to, you know, you and, and you're able to, to offer, you know, those kind of services through your lab. Um, I think that's awesome. But again, that's not, that's not, you know, realistic for a lot of settings. Um, so different, different, um, different therapists I've talked to around Ontario, they've tried different things. Like they've tried to partner with, you know, cardiac rehab, their cardiac rehab colleagues to say, you know, could we send our patients, our stroke patients to your exercise lab for testing? Then at least I have, you know, a report in my hand. I know how safe they are. I, I know what their, their heart rate and blood pressure responses are. I know how hard I can push them. Um, and that could be one way. Um, I have colleagues in Toronto who've, who've tried to look at submaximal exercise testing, graded submaximal exercise testing as a way, again, to give them clinical information about what their exercise responses, what exercise responses are and what safe parameters, like how, how far can I push them? I won't go beyond the submax test. Um, again, that's something that took a lot of years for them to develop 
their own processes and their com- their therapists to have the comfort level to conduct the test. Lots of like training at the beginning, but also ongoing training as new therapists come on board um, and they get new staff and you know that kind of thing. So they're always kind of looking to to maintain and increase their level of knowledge. So I think those those kinds of um, those kind of strategies can work. Um, definitely take you know, it takes time and it takes, you know, dedication and commitment to learning and developing um, and maintaining and, you know, maintaining your skills. Like it's not just a one-time thing and you've got, you, you know it and you're good to go, right? You have to kind of keep it up. Okay. So you will find, you will not make them a must. You will, well, if you have the capacity to do, to do them, I think they are a very good thing. I think we have improved the safety of our patients a lot in, in the hospital with this test, to be honest, because we also can do, we can do ECG, we can do a bunch of things to measure cardiac function, uh, quite sophisticated stuff, but you will find other strategies, but you will not make uh, these something that patients need to go through before they exercise because you think that this this could stop them from exercising, correct? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it depends on the patient. So certainly if you have someone that has you know, high risk, you know, lots of morbidities, then for sure, like, uh, you know, uh, um, a simple screening or even a submax test may not be sufficient. And then that's when you actually do need. So I think it's for clinicians to recognize that it's going, your patients are going to be across the continuum and there's some people that are going to be lower risk and maybe they were exercises before their stroke. And, you know, so they, they kind of know their bodies and they know what they're able to do, or they know how they have, you know, exercise experience. Whereas some people may be more on the other end of the frail, had never exercised before, you know, have multiple morbidities, you know, multiple risk factors, and then you have to kind of really evaluate whether or not. But does everybody across the board need a CPAT? I don't, I don't think so. And even ACSM has like really looked at the evidence for their their general exercise recommendations and said, like, listen, it, you know, risk isn't an absolute thing that it doesn't change and is static, right? Risk is risk is, is is fluid and dynamic and it depends on your health status, but also depends on your physical activity behaviors and it depends on how hard you're going to work. So if you've been a habitual exerciser for most of your life and you're and you're and you're coming into maybe moderate intensity exercise, you know, and you don't have risk factors, you you don't need medical clearance to start. Like just start. You're fine. Right? But if and, and even if you experience, you know, a cardiovascular event, but you've been a lifelong exerciser and you're not going to go and like, you know, sprint like, you know, I don't know, whatever, right? Like super high intensity, you're probably okay. So there's enough evidence to say that the more engage, the more you engage in exercise, regardless of what your risk is, your risk will incrementally come down. And so if we can minimize the need for you just because you had a cardiovascular event, you have to get medical clearance and remove that barrier. Um, you know, the more that we can get the whole population, like as a, from a societal level, yeah. engaged. I want to. I, I think you can see some, sorry, one one more thing about the ACSM. They so in the past it used to be you know your screening questions were like, have you had an event? Do you have like renal disease, cardiovascular disease, whatever? Right, like the, asking about health, and that was kind of the first questions to make a decision about whether someone is say high, medium or low risk or whether or not they can proceed with exercise. Now they've revised it to say the first question is, do you exercise regularly? Yes or no. And so it, it just it has shown that, you know, our understanding of the evidence is saying that 
you know, habitual physical activity is kind of the first, your first pass at, you know, streaming someone into whether they should be high or low risk. Yeah, it's the first step of a screening. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, I want to ask you about one biomarker that you use to measure cardiovascular health, which is arterial stiffness. <laughs> and I'd like you to explain in simple terms what arterial stiffness is, why it's important to measure it in a stroke, and how do you measure it in your lab? Yeah, so arterial stiffness is one of these, um, what we're calling like uh, novel risk markers. So we, we know there, there are many traditional risk factors for cardiovascular disease, high blood pressure, obesity, you know, diabetes, that kind of thing. But then there are also some novel risk markers that we think will help us understand and maybe help us with some early detection of um, progression towards uh, increased cardiovascular risk. So our arteries are meant to be flexible and pliable. They're meant to absorb, you know, um, a force as the heart is pumping blood through the vessels. Um, but over time, with aging, with with um, pathology, they can become stiff. And the uh, the stiffer they become, um, it's an indicator of maybe you know plaque deposition in the arteries or like impaired. Um, you know, ability to, to vasodilate and constrict in response to changes in blood flow and heart rate. Um, we measure it non-invasively. So we can measure it based on what we call pulse wave velocity. So the speed at which the pulse waves travel through the arterial tree, um, the faster the pulse waves travel, the stiffer the arteries are. So if we think about, you know, um, pumping water through a hose, a rubber hose, versus a steel pipe. So when, when the water flows through a steel pipe, it's going to gush through at a standard rate, right? Whereas a hose that's, you know, that's rubber and there's some flexibility in it, there, there's just more give in the artery. So the faster the pulses are traveling, the stiffer the arteries. We measure that through um, pressure sensors that we can place over superficial arteries, so at, either at the carotid artery and the femoral artery, and we measure the pulses, um, and, uh, um, the timing of the pulses, and then we measure the distance between those arteries, and when we get distance over time, we can calculate a speed. I, I, I have two more questions. I have a bunch of questions, but uh, we need to finish this, obviously. But I want to ask you two more general questions, maybe more personal. Uh, <laughs> Uh, you're a physical therapist. You've become a leader in your field uh, of research. And uh, I'm wondering if there is anything you know now that you wish you had known when you finished your, your studies as a physical therapist. And also, if you have any advice for future physical therapists and especially women interested in a stroke rehab. Well, I wish I knew now that <laughs> then that I know now. I feel like I don't even know. I feel like I still need to learn things. I need I need my myself twenty years from now to tell me what I should know now, <laughs> let alone what I know now, what I should have known twenty years ago. So, um, I you know I think I think the, the the greatest part of this career has been how how the learning never stops, um, and I think the the best thing that has been um, in my career is that I, I, I try to be open to opportunities. I, I try to, um, you know, just embrace things as they come. I, you know, I, I like challenges. I like challenges to myself, like when something pushes me outside of my own kind of comfort zone and, and, um, 
if it makes me feel uncomfortable, like it's something that actually makes me pause and think, maybe I, maybe I should do it, right? Maybe this is something that's good for me. And then I can look back at, I can look back at the experience and, and see how much I've grown. Um, even just, you know, getting to become a researcher was something that wasn't, again, something that I had known or thought that I was going to do. Um, but when the opportunity presented myself, it was a way to kind of push my Push me outside of my comfort zone. It was, a, you know, an area of interest for me, and it was a great way for me to get into research and 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 was a a positive experience that I ended up staying on this track, and here I am today. Um, so I would say, you know, be open to opportunities. Uh, you know, I I thought that I was going to work in a sports med clinic, and I'm probably the farthest thing from that now. And you know, and I and I and I don't regret any of it. I think it's been a great journey. I've met a lot of amazing people along the way. I've learned a lot along the way, and I hope that um, you know I keep learning and keep contributing to um, to the profession and to science as much as I can. Okay. And the final question is how you define success, both professionally and personally. <laughs> Um, yeah, I, I think as a, as a therapist and, and even now as a researcher, it's always been around, you know, helping other people improve. Um, I think that was kind of the biggest thing that I loved about being a therapist was, you know, being, feeling like I was part of someone's recovery after something, you know, big, like a stroke that happens in their lives. If I can play a small role in that and see them improve and see them get to go home and reunite with their families, that was always super, super rewarding for me. Um, as a researcher, it's, it's, it's kind of the same thing. When I see, you know, projects come to fruition, when I see, um, you know, my students who are, are doing amazing work and, and um, continue um, continue along their own track. That's, that's for me really, really rewarding as, um, from a professional point of view. Um, personally, I mean, I guess it's, it's kind of the same thing, right? Like when I, when I feel like I've, I've, um, met a challenge, you know, and, it, um, yeah, I don't know, I guess overcoming challenges is, is a, is a, is a, is, um, is uh, really important to me. So I'll, 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 I'm not, I, I don't think I'm afraid of hard work and I'll, I'll, I'll do what it takes to kind of get things done as long as I'm feeling kind of passionate about it. Thank you so much for um, participating in this. I hope you enjoy the conversation. I really enjoyed talking to you. Thanks so much.